Hello there, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Scott. Well, hello. And Craig. Hello. Now, if you're a regular listener... Condolences. <laughs> if you are a regular listener, then you're probably expecting this slot to be occupied by our main themed episode. But we're changing things around a little this month, and that topic... A look at the work of renowned Hong Kong film director Wong Kar Wai will be a two-parter straddling this month and next. But if there's one thing we like around here as much as tenuous, even tortured links, then of late it's watching and discussing Jean-Claude Van Damme films. As such, and here's the tenuous tortured part, we thought we could pair up Wong Kar Wai with another lauded Hong Kong director, Ringo Lam, and specifically the three films in which he worked with their boy from Brussels, Maximum Risk, Replicant and In Hell. While we do, sadly, seem to have exhausted JCVD fighting animals, <laughs> these films do at least extend the connections of penguins... Lamentably, this time only a metaphorical penguin, so little to no chance of him roundhouse kicking that, (laughs) and Van Damme playing multiple roles in the same film, including an unknown brother. There's even a continuation of the magnificent double team's super dodgy wigs theme. (laughs) So, three American films from the late 90s to early 2000s by a respected Hong Kong action director. One of them with a script by the writer of Raging Sharks and Shark in Venice. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? Three films. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested that you said we've run out of options in combating animals, so I think if our listeners take away nothing else from tonight, it'll be that instead we've moved on to films where Jean-Claude Van Damme combats logic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Talking of that, Craig, um, in a film um, where... (laughs) The characters move from the seaside city of Nice Mm -hmm. to go to Paris at one point, and a key point of being in Paris is to go for seafood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's carry on with the the illogic that is maximum risk. Aye. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) I'm really glad I've had a stiff drink before we begin this tonight. Okay, the mid-90s. Remember those? Hell of a time. Turns out to have been golden hour for big-budget action movies, but we weren't to know that. We were in our mid-teens, in love with Hong Kong heroic bloodshed, and if anyone so much as looked at a pair of matching handguns, our brains probably started melting out of our ears. In 1993, John Woo made the hop across the Pacific to make his US debut with Hard Target, which my comrades have spoken about at some length already in a prior podcast. At that point... The movie's star, one Jean-Claude Van Damme, had a bit of momentum behind him, and it's not hard to imagine that he saw in that movie's success something of a formula. So it was, Van Damme himself suggested tapping up more Hong Kong talent, this time City on Fire director Ringo Lam, for another high-profile outing in the form of 1996's Maximum Risk. Pair Van Damme up with a smoking hot 20-something rising star in the form of Natasha Henstridge, a transatlantic Nice Cops versus New York Rusky Gangsters plot, a hot pinch of mistaken identity, shake over ice and watch the kudos and cash come rolling on in. Totally didn't work. (laughs) Alain Moreau explains the accent 
is a Nice cop whose attention is called by his colleague Sebastian, Jean Hughes, actually French Anglade, to the appearance of a corpse which looks staggeringly similar to Alan. Actually, it's identical. We, the audience, have been privy in the first five minutes of the movie as to how the corpsage evented itself. But I'm not going to bother too much with that because it's quite intentionally, or sorry, quite unintentionally funny. <laughs> And the only moment I actually enjoyed in the entire movie. That's a lie, as we were discussing off mic earlier. So I'd quite like to keep it for myself, if you don't mind. Anywho, a bit of rummaging around in a lawyer's office reveals two things. An adoption agreement and a large angry Russian psycho with a red face called... Red Face. Red Face duly gets his comeuppance as he is knocked cold by Alan and thrown into the raging furnace that is the now torched office. <laughs> there will be no coming back from that. Alan discovers that the dead man is, in fact, <laughs> his identical twin, of course, Mikhail Suvorov, separated at an early age and raised by a wealthy gangster on the streets of New York's Little Odessa. Mikhail had apparently been making a clean break from that way of life and was in search of his brother when the Russians caught up with him in Nice. Determined to get to the bottom of all this rather, you know, than having the sense one would assume of a seasoned detective and keeping well clear of incredibly dangerous gangsters on an entirely separate continent, Alan reckons it would be a hoot to fly to New York and have a poke around in Mikhail's old life. Because I want to know my brother... Along the way, he is, obviously, mistaken for his twin brother, who nobody had any reason to know about, and subsequently, Mikhail's problems are now Alan's problems. Oh, and Mikhail's girlfriend too, because there's nothing morally reprehensive about sleeping with a woman who legitimately thinks you're her partner, as opposed to his twin brother who she didn't know existed. <laughs> Hilarity ensues. <laughs> Only it doesn't. This podcast has laboured tirelessly now to bring to your attention that the only thing conceivably better than a Van Damme is two Van Dams. <laughs> I think the collective noun is a split of Van Dams. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm <laughs> How long did you work on that? <laughs> don't, don't, I'm really pleased with that. <laughs> don't, don't take that away from me. That was the first time in years I've been proud of something as I was typing it. Um, I remember to um, play this episode for your kids sometimes. <laughs> remember not to swear, Craig. So, yeah, consider this an apology of sorts. Almost nothing about Maximum Risk makes sense, from the plot to the casting to the fact that Ringo Lamb would look at the script and think, yes, I watched this movie two nights ago and I already remember almost nothing of it, bar the funny bit I mentioned at the start and the sight of Natasha Henstridge naked, which is exactly why Natasha Henstridge was cast in this movie. It's really sad to think it's taken almost a quarter century to bury this kind of lecherous gaze in mainstream movies, which, bizarrely, this kind of was at the time. But dare I say the movie's worst crime is to be so utterly forgettable. There are a couple of Oh, that guy performances in there. Poor Zach Grenier, I'm looking at you. But otherwise, there's a cast you've never heard of nor seen since. And the script... Oh, the script. From the bizarrely earnest to the earnestly bizarre. We run the gamut from... Parents always lie to their children to prepare them for the way they will be treated later by the government to... <laughs> you've gotten a lot harder since you've been away. <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> 
And did I mention this was an action movie? I did, didn't I? Right at the start. Well, it's not. I lied. It has no action in it whatsoever. So I'm not sure if this is this is an action movie with no action, or everyone involved thought it was a thriller, in which case it has no thrills. I think the latter might be true, because this was apparently originally to be called The Exchange, but that wasn't deemed Van Damme enough of the title. Never mind that it made a lot more sense. I don't think one has to stretch one's intellect all that much to see why Lamb never did... Never did get to make his face off. <laughs> Although, actually, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, though the misguided career opportunity afforded by Van Damme, which no doubt came from a genuine place, certainly explains how these two ended up in each other's company so much over the coming years. Uh, in short, I see no reason whatsoever to recommend anyone ever watching this movie. The name doesn't make any sense, does it? There's nothing maximum or risky about pretty much anything that happens in it apart from thinking somehow that Zach Grenier could do in Russian accent. <laughs> <laughs> or or I'm thinking as a central plot point. There's no reason for me to go and mess with incredibly dangerous gangsters, but let's. <laughs> it's a bit uh, risky, to be fair. Yeah. I, I, actually <laughs> I don't know about maximum, but it's quite risky. I, I just knew nothing about this film at all till you'd mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, Craig, during one of our other mm. discussions about Van Damme. And I thought, well, sit down and watch this, and it, it starts off in the south of France. I think, oh, I like the south of France. That's quite good. You don't see that many action films set there. Mm. And the buildings and streets and things look quite different from a lot of other places. Oh, this looks like quite an interesting location, at least visually. And then, of course, your man has his accident on his... Is it like a moped or something? I've forgotten the de- actual details of it now. It's like a, it's, yeah, it's it's like a vegetable thing, it? delivery Vespa or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, which he clearly breaks, um, pulls the brakes on as he's coming to the at wall and then it clearly accelerates once it stops after that. Um, <laughs> I laughed so hard at that scene and I can only assume it was not intended to be funny. That was the most unintentionally funny thing I have seen in months. Yeah, I also laughed heartily at that quick. <laughs> to be fair, I Why would recommend that? this film simply because of that, because it was very funny. In, in retrospect uh, as well, and it's something you can only appreciate after having viewed the movie, in that first five minutes, the way that character acts, Van Damme's other character, Mikhail, does he act the way you would expect a hardened gangster who has grown up in Little Odessa, New York to act, or... Does he act as though he's in an Inspector Clouseau movie? It's very much more the second, right, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so it starts off in Nice in the south of France, and they can, oh, very interesting. Like, and then within, what, ten minutes, we're basically in gloomy, supposed to be New York alleyways. Like, oh, great. I've not seen that 10,000 times. Wonderful. How interesting and visually distinctive that was. <laughs> and yet things didn't look up from there. It's uh, The accents are appalling and inconsistent. And I don't know, it's just... Oh, I, I, mean, I, I can remember more of it than I care to, um, such as my curse, but it's, it's just so nondescript right. in the most part. Apart from the fact that we get to the end of it, Natasha Henstridge says to... Alan, you're a good person, as was your brother. Your mm-hmm. brother, the Russian mafia person. Yeah. Weird definitions you have there, lady. Mm-hmm. But of course, um, you decided to get off with this person who you now know is not your brother while being held hostage by two FBI agents in a tiny bathroom. Super romantic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, she's got no problem squaring that away. <laughs> Can I not also point out, the only reason this movie starts in Nice is to explain away Van Damme's accent. Could we not have set it in Brussels? Um, I think Belgian accents, unless you really know French, I suspect, are at least similar enough to French that I'll let that slide. He's done a lot are, of films in France. Are there are there tax reasons? Is, is it cheaper to film in France than it is in Belgium? Did they want no. a holiday? I don't know, but it, it's strange that they bothered to explain his accent because they kind of give up on that <laughs> in the next two films. <laughs> Next to this is one. Of, <laughs> this is one of a handful of films where they felt obliged to even attempt. I think I'm, I'm not quite as down on maximum risk as you guys are, but I still wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Well, clearly, don't I think, value our friendship. Then I think part of that is because I've seen the next two films that we'll go talk about, and it's made this, in retrospect, quite it's a bit all, better. It's all relative, it's, right, Scott? If if you squint at maximum risk a bit, it looks like a normal film, which is not something you can probably say of the other two. You know, it, it shares enough common with conventional plotting that you can probably see it in a reflection and think it's a proper film and um, yeah it's just not very good uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's more of a thriller it's trying to reach parts of Jean-Claude Van Damme's um, acting range that I don't think he can quite uh, get to and the, <laughs> the script hasn't quite backed up things like oh. trying to have an emotional scene over the death of the taxi driver that he's known for a day it's like eh, oh that was oh I forgot about no the taxi you. driver yeah that the guy who's basically Mel Gibson in a in conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> you, and listen and you know that that guy playing the taxi driver thought this was going to be his big break yeah, he was acting he was trying. in an entirely different film. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that's actually just you mentioned that's got reminded me of something else. A couple of points in this film actually where someone gets like injured or something, and it, because apparently the characters have read the script, they know they don't need to bother trying to phone in for an ambulance or anything. It's like, <laughs> no, no, it's not going to work. Even it's like the situation is that you know possibly they could be saved. You'd maybe try. It's all, no, we've read the script, we know he doesn't make it, yeah. so we won't bother. <laughs> it's almost a pastiche of um, genre cliches and tropes. Almost hangs enough together as well enough that if you don't inspect it too closely, you could think of it as a proper film, but it's, it's not a very good one. And I wouldn't particularly um, advise that anyone go and check it out, even if they are the hardened Jean-Claude Van Damme film, because it doesn't really deliver anything of use that uh, oh. Jean-Claude Van Damme typically would. say It's not an awful lot of action. There's perhaps a one decent car chase at the very end, um, and that part after the, uh, the, the fall they're all at the bank. But it's not worth enough. And, and I did like that first opening sequence where you're joined in media res, which is the first time you'd say that about a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. Um, <laughs> it, but the whole stretch in the middle is just... <sighs> Not even competent. Almost competent, but not quite. And that's not really what we're in the, the business of advising people watch. So, yeah, no. Yeah, the whole I thing's absolutely to... perfunctory. That's my mm. problem with it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's... Scott's right, though, is that, no, it's a film. It has the traits of a film. Not <laughs> the traits of a good film. It has the traits of a film. It certainly appears to have been shot on film stock. <laughs> I'll give it yes. that. But what I don't get, though, is, like, in what way is this a Ringo Lamb film? Mm-hmm. For all of the problems of Jean Wu's, I don't know why I suddenly made him Jean Wu's, like now he's French. <laughs> um, Jean-Claude Van Wu. Yes, Jean Wu Van Damme. <laughs> all of the problems of Jean Wu's Hollywood output, it's like, they had like a, a flair and a style in certain places and they felt like a Jean Wu film. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, like, 
where's the Ringo Lamb stamp on this? There's no flair or style around it. You know, it's, it's been a while since I've watched a lot of Ringo Lamb films, but the only bit, there's only like one scene even that has a little bit of that personality to it, to me, which was when after the, the, the chase at the end when they crashed the van, I think they were in at the time, and um, what's his face, the uh, Russian bad guy who's uh, Zach Grenier's character. Um, it's either Mikhail Yuri. Ivan. Or Ivan, Dimitri, because yes. that's as inventive as they got with the names. Yeah. Oh, it's Ivan Craig. It's like the oh, Ivan, jo- sorry, the Russian yeah. John. Mm-hmm. You could not get less inventive than <laughs> having somebody called Ivan. It's the bit where he's got right. He has his mate in the um, his, his French cop mate in the van as a hostage. Mm-hmm. You've got they've kind of broken free. The guy's <laughs> broken free a bit, and then he shoves Ivan up through the window, and Jean Claude batters him back down again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one scene there's only bit has got any kind of personality to it whatsoever so a, there's something that's um, popped back into my memory there though it's like there's actually one point of Jean-Claude Van Damme's acting in this and I thought oh actually that was quite good um, and it was unexpected it's like the bit when he's in the bank listening to the tape recorded the recorded tape message of his brother yeah and he's sitting and he's he's crying a wee bit and his lips slightly quivering but actually yeah. that was quite subdued it's like I didn't think Sean Confat had that in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's it in the rest of the film? Because yeah. <laughs> um, like, that could have so easily go over the top. It's actually, no, it's like, that's actually pitched pretty much perfectly. I think we, we touched on this the last time when when you and I, um, it was just you and I, wasn't it, Drew, in the last Van Damme episode? The double team one, yeah. Yes, about double team stuff. We spoke about this before where there's... <sighs> Oh my god, there's a sense of frustration around Van Damme has actually got some talent I think it was acknowledged at the time I think when he did I think one of the whole things around the point at which Nowhere to Run as it called, came out I've not actually seen it, but I remember the conversation around it, that people were acknowledging that of all these sort of sort of B-movie action stars that Van Damme might actually be the guy who might be able to break through and who actually had some sort of acting talent. And mm-hmm. we see f- sort of at various points, we see sort of really frustrating little glimpses. And I would argue the next film we're going to talk about, there's one or two there. They feel comically out of place in the context <laughs> of the actual film. But there's one or two instances where you're like, oh, bless him, he's actually... He's not that bad and he's making a bit of an effort. And you can imagine this performance actually sitting quite well if it was in an entirely different movie. <laughs> yeah, it's something that actually deserves it. I mean, if you look at the stuff he actually does in JCVD, he clearly has some acting skill. Mm-hmm. You know, he certainly can do some reasonably subtle emotions, you know. So There's a film we need to go back to. JCVD, mm-hmm. yeah. I wouldn't have any problem with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... We're never going to go back to maximum risk, though, are we? No, no, no. So, no, we're not. Shall we move on? If we must. Uh, I know you don't particularly want to talk about it, Scott, but uh, yes. Let, <laughs> I've let, done my part, and I'm damned if you're not going to do yours. <laughs> let's let's move on to a film which, um, of all of the Hollywood bullshit, has one of my absolutely least favourite things in that invokes the wonderful idea of genetic memory. So <laughs> this film can get bent. <laughs> I knew this was going to wind you up. <laughs> yes, uh, we're talking about Replicant. Uh, in Replicant, we are introduced to our boy JCVD playing a serial killer, Naughty Boy. Edward the Torch Garrot has been leaving a trail of incinerated mothers across Seattle, with the lead investigator, Michael Rooker's detective Jake Riley, unable to capture him. Although he comes close in the film's kick-off cross-town chase. However, as he's retiring... 
somewhat early, it seems. Ruger's not that old. Um, so he's closing the book on this and going home to be a family man. Garot, however, isn't done with the detective, making threatening phone calls and generally being a bit of a nuisance. So when a shady and apparently institutionally insane government agency shows up, offering him another chance to get his man, he accepts. In stark defiance of all science, logic and reason, they have grown a clone of Garoth as a prototype of a terrorist capturing system, as they are totally a thing genetic memories can be used to track them down once they have been reactivated by, well, let's not look for explanations that don't exist even in this film's universe. To be fair to Riley, his first thought, now that we know exactly what he looks like, let's plaster his mugshots all over across the city, is a very reasonable one. However, it's one that cannot be done for the reason that a film has to be perpetrated upon us. So instead, Riley is given custody of the replicant Garot, who is a quick study of gymnastics, but essentially has the mind of a child otherwise, to try and raise, I guess, with the hopes of prompting clues to the real Garot's location. Oh, and they're apparently psychically liked too, because, screw it, why not? I'm only disappointed they didn't give them lightsabers. Yes, well, they did say they, they resequenced the genome to make him um, psychic, Scott. Yes. It's, it's all explained. It's easily done. The Lads, the end doesn't happen otherwise. <laughs> Lads, at this point, we're 20 minutes into the film, which <laughs> into which has been packed an impressively dense amount of nonsense. I had perhaps been hoping this would escalate into another double team of podcast passing. Sadly, the film settles into a nice relaxing coma for the next hour with very little of interest happening, apart perhaps from a few scenes where an understandably stressed and confused Riley takes out his frustrations physically and verbally on clone garrot, which comes across a lot like child abuse or kicking a puppy. It picks up a little bit in the final stretch in a with a fight in a geriatric ward where they're throwing old geezers and wheelchairs at each other in a pretty decent hacking sequence, but that's very much too little too late after a flat middle that's taking a stupid concept altogether too seriously. I can't lay all that much of the blame at Van Damme or Rooker's feet or even Ringo Lambs, to be honest, who are more or less doing as well they can with the material available to them, but Lawrence Riggins and Les Weldon skipped just isn't up to snuff with a premise that needs to be either much more or much less ridiculous. While, <laughs> as you've probably gathered by now, I do not recommend that you seek out Replicant, I also can't bring myself to say that I hate it. It ultimately was just too dull to have too strong an opinion on, which I certainly wasn't expecting after that opening salvo of silliness. Back down the memory hole you go, and I shall never think of you again, yes. unless I revisit the vaguely similarly themed Jet Li vehicle Unleashed, or Danny the Dog in some parts of the world, which oh, I recall yeah. being a great deal more fun than this. Yes. And also had Bob Hoskins. Yes. Struck me nuts. <laughs> yeah. I was also, Scott, very uncomfortable at Michael Rooker's character in the way he was just beaten up what is effectively a two-day-old child with yeah, no memory. Yeah, that's three of us. Yeah, that was not not comfortable at all. This film's tremendously stupid, <laughs> but it's not stupid enough. Yes. And like you, have, I was... It's not good. Um, and there's nothing, basically nothing redeeming about it. But I didn't hate it. I was just bored. Yeah. I was just sitting there with my eyes pointing in the direction of the screen like, well, that's dumb. After 20 but, minutes, it just goes round in a circle for a whole hour and doesn't no. do anything. It doesn't, well, it does the same thing about four or five times and then ends. It's like, ugh, ugh, just yeah. no, no, no thank you. It's weird too. There, there's, a, there's a kind of weirdly dark thing stuck at the end too, which actually, in terms of a proper film about this kind of thing, would actually be quite sinister, which is when he goes to visit his, when the bad guy goes to visit his mother in the yeah. in the hospital with his wig like a dyed string mop (laughs) 
and he's saying that you know I killed this woman for you, and uh, you know I, I cut her nice and slow and stuff like. That's super creepy if you have it in a film with the tone of something like Seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not in a Ringo Lamb supposed martial arts film with Sean Claude Van Damme. And, you, and you're go. not dressed the way you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so just to chime in. I, so I have, I have detailed files, right? <laughs> I'm going to read some of this back out of order because based on the fact of what I've just been saying about Jake. So I'll go to the last note that I've made, which is, is Jake the most irredeemable piece of ever. He gives replicant literal dogs abuse throughout, completely dehumanises him at every turn, then turns around and proclaims, I'm your family now, as if this isn't the thin end of a really terrible wedge. <laughs> yes. And why isn't his partner, that woman, creeped out by that, the yes. fact that he's in the house with her son, and he's doing that to another human I'm being? I'm just going to handcuff this guy to a pipe in the cellar. Don't think too much <laughs> about it. I was actually really pleased with the way this movie ended, because I'd have thrown my phone out of the f***ing window if Replicant had ended up living with Jake. <laughs> 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 I'm, like, I'm like, what the happy horse is this? That is hands down the strangest dynamic I've come across in a film ever. And I am really pleased because the film showed no, no iota of being aware enough of itself that I thought it was actually going to end the way it did. I throughout, I'm like, oh shit, he's going to end up living with this guy who is the most abusive, narrow-minded person I have had the misfortune to cross paths with and be called a good guy in a film in any number of years. That that character, Michael Rooker's character, oh my days. How do you read that script and sign on thinking, yes, I, I would like to try and com- convey that to an audience? <laughs> that is mental Absolutely mental The first note I've made Slightly less in depth is Why have they built a helicopter pad in a bush? <laughs> Which I've had that thought as well Why well, is it a stealth helicopter I, pad? I watched that and I went eh? And then it wasn't until So two days later Today I went back and I had a look When I was preparing these notes And I had a quick look at IMDB trivia And I think under under goofs Someone has listed There's a, a helicopter lands in a bush for no reason And I thought oh good It's not just me then <laughs> yeah. It's not a goof though Because you don't do that by accident There's a helicopter on it Exactly <laughs> um, So yeah, for me the biggest question, and if I, if I may try and paraphrase what I think you guys were perhaps trying to encapsulate, is that it's remarkable to me that this film appeared to be trying so hard and had so many ideas, yet I somehow found it less rewarding than Maximum Risk. <laughs> this is clearly, to, to my mind, if you look at the timing of this, this feels like this feels like Ringo Lamb trying to do his face off. But without the budget, the stars, or even a halfway decent script. It's trying to do that thing of playing around with the theme of duality, which Face Off did. But Face Off, to your point, Scott, had the decency to just go all in and be as mental as possible. Yeah. And that's why that worked. Um, whereas this just keeps falling flat on its ass. So the minute, and no, no joke, Drew, the minute... The, the the phrase genetic memory got thrown up. I burst out laughing and I thought of you, right? The, the idea of that, though, is no more stupid than the premise of swapping faces intrinsically. But the problem is that this movie just takes itself far too earnestly. 
<laughs> but again, to the point we were making before, bless Van Damme if he isn't really trying his best to act here yeah. and act with a capital A. The man-child stuff occasionally borders on touching. He's making a real effort, but then it forgets it's trying to be a violent serial killer movie and it goes for laughs by having him walk out into the street wrapped in toilet tissue. And it's like, wait a minute, is this a thriller or is this Rain Man? What are you trying... What is it you're going for here? And bless him, Van Damme is making such an effort. It doesn't even kick anyone in the face in this movie until like an hour and 20 minutes in. This is genuinely... This is genuinely his best attempt at doing something that I've seen so far, that something that would constitute, inverted commas, acting. And it is possibly the worst context for him to have deployed <laughs> this in. It's remarkable. Yeah, everything about this just feels so misguided. And the, the notion of genetic memory, it's that thing, and you've spoken about it a lot of times, Scott, this thing that a lot of people will speak about, which is right. I will give you one leap of faith, right? I will buy into one ridiculous concept for your film, but you'd better back it up. And listen, genetic memory is no more daft than any any other number of things. If it's going to make the movie work, that's fine. But this movie doesn't work. It doesn't even follow through. It doesn't, it doesn't have the good faith to follow through on the premise of genetic memory and that, okay, you can have the fight at the end. Like you said, Scott, the whole thing of, right, so what, so what training has he got? He's watched a gymnastics video. <laughs> and then that's deployed, and that pays off in a whole one scene where he's having a fight with those FBI guys or whatever the hell they are in, the, uh, in whatever location it is, I can't remember. And they end up standing, staring at him, completely dumbfounded while he does basically the parallel bars off a couple yes. of pipes for about 10 minutes just to really hammer home the point. And then it's never mentioned again. And you get to the climax then where all of a sudden there's no notion that anyone in this film has any martial arts training whatsoever, least of all replicant. And then his evil, uh, the, the original guy's evil Van Damme, whatever the hell his name is, starts basically trying to spin kick him at the end. And he keeps matching his moves and blocking his moves, move for move. He's like, I can read your mind. Yes. <laughs> Understanding, uh, I'll buy the premise that y- y- you're telepathically linked. That doesn't explain how you're all of a sudden able to execute the martial arts yeah. required. <laughs> Am I thinking about this too hard? <laughs> Are you thinking about it? Yes. <laughs> and you're thinking about it too hard. Yes. Um, and it, more importantly, though, Craig, you're right about the the acting. Um, and this film doesn't deserve it. And what I'm, the key thing about these films are covering is is that the worst thing about any of them isn't Van Damme. Yeah. Van Damme's not the problem in any of them. I know. And I kind of appreciate that he's trying. Yeah. Because that the whole idea of him being this kind of simple childlike character you could do that so much worse yeah it could just look absolutely comical and ridiculous yeah. and he's he's not the worst i've seen that type of thing being done in movies i know not not by a long chalk yeah. and like honestly the only time i think it's it's really difficult to buy is just when the wardrobe department have made him look like he's dressed like a wee boy with a baseball cap and stuff mm. like there's something something about the clothing there just made it seem dafter mm. but yeah, it's Van Damme's not the problem. <laughs> um, the the film is, and the film is stupid. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, I would take it see the the nonsense sci-fi and stuff in it. And if everything around it was better, you don't care about that. Yeah, it's like okay, right, this is your daft idea. 
psychic magic genetic memory clone man okay right but I, I struggle to believe that when I don't believe any of the motivations of any of the characters mm. like why is this woman with Michael Ruger why would she not just be getting her son away from him immediately and <laughs> <laughs> the biggest danger in this film is Michael Rooker and not the serial killer and why are we going to all the bother of having the setting up this whole genetic memory thing and having a replicate and all that thing? And all it really boils down to is him remembering a triangle and a clock, and apparently mm-hmm. that's good enough to set in motion all the rest of the events at some point. And uh, yeah, triangle clock drawn like a three-year-old yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like none of the characters make sense. So like, look at his mother, who's like finds him in the bathroom struggling with uh, half-naked Van Damme, and and she sees him handcuff him to the pipe that he apparently has in the bathroom for the purpose of handcuffing people to because that appeared to serve no <laughs> structural purpose but, um, it's, like, it's not what you think it's like well either you think um, he's having a relationship with this guy in which case it's none of her business but if she thinks that homosexuality is wrong well she can die in all the fires or she it is what she thinks which is him beating up a man and then imprisoning her against his will and she's fine with that so you know she can die in all the fires <laughs> yes <laughs> it's bizarre the frustrating thing is this is a this is a this is a movie that has an idea that could have worked if almost everything about it was different <laughs> exactly <laughs> Somewhere under here, there is a passable movie. Hmm. There is a passable B movie, certainly, but taint this one. Yeah, and again, where's the Ringo Lamness of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's, um, before we move on, I'm point this out. Now, there's a website called DVD Verdict, which I think I've heard of before. Now, I am not familiar with their reviewer, Mike Jackson, and I don't know whether he's simply never seen any other Van Damme films or he's a moron, but he said of Replicant. It's far from a great film, but Replicant is quite possibly the best film Van Damme has starred in since his debut in Bloodsport. Um, hmm. Maybe he just doesn't like Van Damme. <laughs> maybe that's it. It's like, um, an interesting Bloods- take. Yeah. yeah, Bloodsport's a bad film, and Van Damme is particularly bad in it. And actually, it's notable that all films post Bloodsport, Van Damme is a notably better actor. Mm. <laughs> I'm not even this? that big of a Van Damme fan, and I can name you three films right off the top of my head. That disprove your theory, Mike. <laughs> There's a few reviews for this, and also in Hell as well, where they're saying it's well, it's one for John Claude Van Damme f- uh, film fans only. Whereas that's exactly incorrect because it's they're not very John Claude Van Damme at all. No, oh. oh, he's not roundhouse kicking anybody oh. in the face or punching a single cobra. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Well, I've mentioned it like the boogeyman that it is, so shall we move on yeah. to NL? Let's, I'm intrigued because I hadn't had time to catch up with this one, so I've not seen it, so I am desperate to hear what you've got to say. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Russia has an Independence Day. It's the 12th of June, and it was first observed in 1992. It celebrates the independence of Russia from the Soviet Union, as if one wasn't a synecdoche for the other. I mention this because, A, it's ridiculous. It'd be like the United Kingdom celebrating its independence from the British Empire. (laughs) And, B, learning this was the only point during Ringo Lambs in Hell that I wasn't bored, irritated, or both. (laughs) JCVD's Kyle LeBlanc is an American. It's so obvious... (laughs) 
Jean-Claude Van Damme's Kyle LeBlanc with his Belgian accent is an American. Uh, he is from uh, the Bayou. As we mentioned earlier, but not even trying to, ex- to explain the accents. <laughs> <laughs> this film needed Wilford Brimley as a Cajun. <laughs> Most films do, to be honest, but... Uh, Yes, he's an American working in Russia. His wife is murdered by a Russian mafioso who is acquitted due to his family connections and influence. And an enraged LeBlanc uh, then murders him outside of the courtroom after the trial. Despite the whole powerful and untouchable mafia thing, LeBlanc apparently need not fear any retribution. And indeed the whole murdered a mafioso plot point is never mentioned, nor, I suspect, thought of again by the three screenwriters. Here seems an opportune moment to mention that this is the sole screenwriting credit of the three. Instead, he is sent to a Russian prison, one where a curiously large number of the Russian guards and Russian prisoners are played by Latino and Italian actors. Because, and I don't know if you've guessed this yet, in hell is a festering pile of crap. (laughs) In said prison, he makes fast enemies of Andre, another mafioso, and befriends Chris Moore's Billy, the subject of repeated rapings by Andre. A bunch of things then happen. Kyle is put into an extended stint in solitary confinement because he fought back when attacked, or didn't fight back, or didn't fight back well enough. I'm really not clear on that at all. He's a troublemaker. Yeah. <laughs> then the fi- by not making trouble, see, yes. <laughs> then the film thinks it's rocky for a brief moment. And when he emerges, Kyle is now a champion fighter, defeating and killing all and sundry in the prison's regular fights. Until, that is, the ghost of his dead wife appears to him, who may or may not also be a possibly magical moth, (laughs) because the film definitely thinks it's the Lord of the Rings at one point, and I kept expecting Van Damme to be rescued from his cell by a giant eagle, (laughs) said ghost telling him that he's lost himself, whatever that means. LeBlanc now refuses to fight, and inexplicably the corrupt prison authorities who run the fights decide that they can't kill him because it will make him a martyr, despite the entire population clearly being certain to not give a single <laughs> since they're all murderers and mafiosi. Except Billy, who is dead and definitely had a character. <laughs> Kyle will, of course, fight again, but as part of an escape plan. But before that, there's also an appearance by Chunk from the Goonies' Russian cousin. Because why the hell not? And just to complete the misery, the whole thing is narrated, for no apparent reason, by Kyle's cellmate, who fancies himself a poet and philosopher, despite being a murderous psychopath who is off to several cellmates simply because they talked too much. It is unrelentingly pish. A sad <laughs> legacy indeed for Lamb's US Sojourn, of which this was the last film, with the director next working on the considerably more successful Triangle, along with Choi Hawk and Johnny Toe. If In Hell has a redeeming feature, then it's that it manages to maintain this episode's unexpected running theme of Jean-Claude Van Damme biting people during fights. <laughs> I really am, of course, scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but as I now remember that this particular chompy section led to the one time I laughed during this, thanks to Van Damme's ludicrous postprandial scream, then it was probably worth getting down on in there. Not that anything else was, alas. <laughs> Avoid. Yeah, um, I, I had no idea what to expect from Inhale at all, and 
I hadn't even heard a plot synopsis of it other than it's a Ringo Lamb film. Okay. Um, I wasn't expecting the Shawshank Redemption written by a sadist and with Morgan Freeman replaced by a linebacker who's also a psychopath. Um, it's just stupid. <laughs> what what was the point of this? It's, it's very dark. Um, I'll give it that. If they wanted to make a very dark film, well done, they've done it. It's unrelentingly grim and miserable um, and no fun whatsoever, yet at the same time doesn't teach us anything about the human condition or anything at all or doesn't appear to actually feature humans in any great depth. Uh, lots of baffling things that are picked up and dropped almost immediately, like... Um, ab- it's. Uh, I got the impression that Andre was supposed to be the brother of the guy that um, Jean-Claude Van Damme killed in the first place because they whistled the same. Um, I it, didn't get that. I assumed it just it triggered him because he because it's a thing people would do like that mm. kind of blowing a kiss at someone like that. So I assumed he just got triggered because otherwise, why didn't he just try to kill him because he killed his brother? Like the, the whole fact he killed a yeah. protected guy was just dropped immediately. And then. The, then he kind of does later. It's just, it's just a bunch of stuff that happened and exactly. didn't make any particular sense and was not in any way compelling or interesting while watching it. Uh, again, as we said in the past one, it is very much not the fault of Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's trying his best, damn it. But his character just doesn't make any sense as written, so he he can try all he likes, um, but apart from the few sort of brutal fight scenes, which um, he can obviously do well enough because he's Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, but they're not in service of anything in particular, and after you get past that, that section and he's trying to somehow martyr himself by not fighting, uh, which prompts everyone else to revolt and all the world's ills to be healed by some nature that happens off screen. Um, it, yeah, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense and this is not very good. The Russian chunk from the Goonies is brought in to fight him and in the end it doesn't kill him because he recognises the sound of someone banging on a wall. Yes. That's the level we're dealing with here. It's <laughs> tremendously stupid. Yes. Um, there's that like post like that just before the credits thing of like mm. the film the prison was shut down three months later so I feel like that had been the point of the film yeah uh-huh. what? I think it's very generous in assuming that the film has a point um, it is merely a thing that happened and uh, yeah uh, I suppose if you're thinking of it from John claude Van Damme's perspective here's an opportunity to a very different style of film than you would typically associate with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, certainly not the way a lot of it's themed and the way a lot of it, uh, the opportunities for some scenes to show emotion is, is given to him. But unfortunately, it's just absolutely cat-handedly handled. Um, it is just no good whatsoever. Again, it's it's almost strange enough that I can't bring myself to hate it, but it, it's certainly not going to recommend anyone watch it. It's... It's just very boring, which is perhaps the, <laughs> the major point. It is so bleak uh, in all of its outlook that it kind of comes across almost as a parody of itself. Um, it's it's no good. <laughs> well, I wish I felt that. This is the shortest film of the three, and it felt like it was four hours long. Yeah. I, I just... It just seemed to go on because nothing's happening. I don't care about anyone. Nothing interesting was happening. It was all just tremendously stupid. 
it was such a weird, weird film. Yes. Unless I've completely misunderstood it, and again, it's possible, but given I'm considerably um, smarter, more intuitive than anybody involved in making this film, I doubt it. <laughs> um, they, they unearthed some old landmines, and more than one, but that seems to have been a part of a um, prearranged escape plot. What? Because I thought like, the, they've got these people out building a railroad because, I don't know, if somebody watched The Bridge in the River Kwai, I guess, at some point. <laughs> uh, and even though like you only see them working on the same bit day after day. But suddenly they uncover a landmine from, I don't know, a, a war at some point, perhaps, and it explodes on a, a truck explodes on a, actually a different landmine and the two people run away and I thought, oh right, they're just, it's opportune. But then the scene directly afterwards suggests that no, somehow that was a setup. <laughs> if prisoners could get landmines, I'm thinking they could find a better way to escape. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it's so stupid, but... <sighs> It's boring. It's so boring. Yeah. Um, very much zero for three tonight. <laughs> if, if anything, think of tonight's podcast as being a cautionary tale. Uh, simply avoid all three of them would be my recommendation. <laughs> yes, that's, like, that's what you do. Um, um, be careful what you wish for, because we're like, we're like Sean Conn Van Damme, and let's just keep watching this because it's kind of fun and easy and maybe we'll get another double team no 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 no. double team's very much its own thing man (laughs) double teams I don't even think that's technically a movie (laughs) again double team is one of the best worst things I've ever seen it's fascinating (laughs) and these are just really really bad films and I don't even think Dennis Rodman in um, an ancient Fiat Cinquecento <laughs> would save this film. This even if somehow that was also in the middle of the prison. This is how bad it's got for this podcast. We're wishing we had a film with Dennis Rodman in it. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I take Rob Schneider because at least he has a character. That'll wrap us up for tonight. Unless you have anything else you want to say about these three wastes of space. No, good. Uh, <laughs> if you have anything you'd like to talk to us about, then please do um, get in touch with us on Twitter at FuzzonFilm, Facebook.com slash FuzzonFilm, or the emails at podcast at FuzzonFilm.com. But until such time as we meet again, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that my compadres will do so too. Take care of yourself. Hasta luego. 